Hey, welcome. Welcome. Welcome to Murderversary. Murderversary. I have a cold. In fact, I finally got COVID after almost three years of avoiding it. And I'm mad at myself. That's no bueno. Because listen, here's the thing. I put it out in the universe. I did it. I was real cocky and I was like, I'm going to see if I can get COVID in the next week. Whoa. And lo and behold, I got fucking COVID. So don't do that. It's possible. <laughs> it's it's happening. Don't make jokes because yeah. they can come true. I got in my head. And I'm like, it was, it's been almost three years. I haven't even got COVID. I've been around someone who had COVID living in my house and I didn't get COVID then. So I'm like, I'm fucking immune to COVID. Obviously I'm not. I got it like a couple days later. I, this, like a similar thing happened to me. I was at one of my jobs and it was a very confined space kind of job and everyone had gotten COVID and I was like, I didn't get COVID at all. And then two weeks later I was ill. I was yeah. so sick with COVID in bed and mom's like, you finally got COVID, huh? And I'm like, fuck off. Yeah. Like, Zero of out of 10 did not recommend. I basically had, I don't want to get into it, but anyway, hi, my name is Danny and I have COVID. So I'm sorry if I sound like I'm plugging my nose. And hi, my name is Agatha, and I don't. <laughs> you don't have COVID. I don't have COVID. Actually, life is pretty great for me right now. Great. <laughs> anyway, um, hello. Hello. Also, we do have something that's kind of exciting to announce. Oh, yeah, we do. We do. We have officially started a Patreon. And a cult. Just kidding. And... <laughs> <laughs> just a patreon and it's pretty cool it is and there's several tiers to it the one that we're most excited about is our mid-tier that we've got going on and it's actually a murderversary true crime trading card club every month for patrons who are subscribed we're going to be sending out a true crime trading card we are still in the process of designing the cards so the first mailing uh will be going out on february 1st and they're a murderversary original every single one of them will be created and crafted and curated by yours truly i mean not me you but us 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 but you yeah. but me really <laughs> didn't want to take the whole credit for that i will have a part you will have a part and together we will make a whole we do have quite a little vision for it though and it's something that i personally like i'm weird with collecting little things like that and stickers and cards and hopefully if you stick around long enough you can end up with a nice little full set you can show off like when little johnny's like here's my pokemon cards and you'd be like here's murder <laughs> and you just throw <laughs> out your cards but yeah so we have that uh basically three tiers first one is just hey you know maybe a cup of coffee helps out a little bit the second one is the trading card club and then we do have a third tier which is a extreme reach tier and it is for anyone who may be interested in more of a financial backing Financial backing, financial partnership with the podcast. Helping with, yeah, production of the podcast. And all tiers will have exclusive content that will only release on Patreon, behind the scenes stuff, bloopers, which we have quite a few of. Many. If you love this type of like Jar Jar Beats content, we've got more of that for you coming in Patreon. We will not release out to the world. And yeah, we're planning some other stuff behind the scenes that's going to be Patreon exclusive content. So definitely check it out. And in Patreon, it'll be a way to you'll see a little bit more of our personalities and the things that we like that aren't just true crime murder related. We do like spooky things, too. And we hope to be able to kind of like share a little bit more of the stuff that we enjoy with you there. Yeah, we try to keep this little bit in the beginning short. So 
if you would like to check it out, it is patreon.com slash murderversary. We'll also be putting a link on the website for it. We'll be posting about it on Instagram. Check it out. Even if you don't want to be a part of it, check it out. Yeah, why not? But also be a part of it. Anyway. Yeah, why not? (laughs) So today I'm doing a little bit of a switcheroo. It's kind of like the switcheroo that you did when you talked about Richard Chase. Okay. I will be talking about... A very, very bad man. And there is a lot of disturbing kind of facts that come along with it. I'm not going to go into too much detail just because I do not want to. Mm-hmm. I get it. Two things that happen in this specifically revolve around January. And we will get to those. And that's kind of what came to my bringing this case up this month. Okay. Warning, this episode may contain discussions that are not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. So this case I've also heard about since I was very young. My family used to have a house in Massachusetts. It was in an area called Cape Cod. If any of you have ever heard about Jaws. Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard, that whole area. Fancy. Yes. And it'll bring up a place called Provincetown. Okay. Provincetown was pretty big for me growing up as well as with my brother because it was... In the time we're going to be talking about it, it was known as more of a hippie town, described as more of a hippie town. When I went to it, it was a very open place for people to have same-sex relationships where you could present yourself without any sort of backlash from anybody else or any sort of ridicule. You could be yourself completely and go there and hold hands in public. And this was back in like 90s, you know. It was it was not as welcomed in other areas, but when you went to Provincetown, you stepped onto the rainbow and it was beautiful and also really amazing it was seafood. Progressive. It was very progressive and it always has okay. been. It always has been. It was where I attended my first drag show. So Ooh, I love mm-hmm, that. it was perfect. Today we are going to be talking about Tony Costa. So Tony's full name is Anton Charles Costa, and he was born on August 2nd, 1944 in Cambridge, Massachusetts. His parents were Cecilia Bent Bonavieri and Anton Fonska Costa. Tony's father was in the Navy and died when he was very young. He barely knew his father. His father died trying to save someone else who was drowning, hit his head, and then drowned himself. So very unfortunate, weird accident. But Tony did not grow up with a father. He started having some very odd things happen when he was younger. At age seven, he started to tell his mother that he had a man coming into his room every night. He eventually found a photo of his father and told his mom, this is the man that's coming into my room every night. He thought his dead dad was visiting him. His mom kind of shut it down and they just didn't talk about it. And that's how we get unresolved trauma. Exactly. Okay. And that's how we have issues. He was very spoiled. His mother never told him no. The question had been raised whether that was because she felt bad about him not having a father or whatnot, but it was never really answered. She just didn't care to discipline him very much. Never told him no. Mm. He was also very smart. So if he came close to punishment, he would be able to weasel his way out of it. Master manipulator, those those children's. Very much so. I was I was a manipulator too when I was a kid, man. Except I used tears to manipulate. I'd cry until people didn't want me to cry anymore and like handed me a popsicle. I'd be like, yeah, that's right. That's what I wanted the whole time. <laughs> Thanks, bye. His mother ended up getting remarried and his stepfather had a masonry business. By the time Tony was 13, he ended up being in charge of the business correspondence for that masonry business. At 13? At 13. So he was very, very intelligent. He was basically keeping books at an adult business. 
which is very impressive. Yes. Um, he did kind of start to run into some behavioral issues. He would play with other girls in the neighborhood when he was younger. And this was around ages 13 to 16. And for fun, he would put pillows over their faces. Oh, just for fun or mm. put ropes around their wrists and tie their wrists together. It was taken as just playing and not taken as anything serious. No one ever got hurt from it. So it was never really reported as something that was a bad action. Plus with his mom never telling him no or punishing him, nothing was ever done about it. He just would. There was no guidance whatsoever. Absolutely no guidance. He would just walk in, put a pillow over their face when they were playing. They would kind of ruffle around a little bit and then he'd lift the pillow off. And that was kind of it. This feels like foreshadowing. I feel like it might be. I don't know why, but I feel like it might be. <laughs> Speaking of foreshadowing, in November 1961, when Tony was 16, he broke into an apartment of a teenage girl that he had previously tried to play with, quote unquote, tie up in a you know, friend, the friendly manner that you tie up people with. She was sleeping when he went in. When she woke up, he was over her bed. He basically spooked her. He wasn't doing anything. He was just leaning over her bed. He spooked her. That's enough. And she started screaming and she just took off running. That spooked him off, got him away. He left. But a few nights later, he came back and leaned over her bed and then tried to drag her down the stairs. Oh, boy. No one really knows what he was intending to do right there. He actually got stopped by a neighbor who was able to help the girl and stop anything else from happening. The neighbor actually kept him there until the police were able to come and arrest him. So at 16 years old, he was arrested for his first little assault break-in incident that he had going on for himself. Wow. Good for the neighbor. He eventually received a one-year suspended sentence and three years of probation for the attack that occurred. His mother finally felt like maybe it was time to help her son a little bit. So what do you do when your kid needs help? You send them away and you don't deal with it yourself. Yeah, you're not used to dealing with it. You're not going to start then. Exactly. So she thought that maybe he would be better off with some family members who lived in Provincetown in Massachusetts. She sent Tony there. He went to live... It didn't say who it was that he went to live with. It just everywhere said family members. So a family member. I believe that it was a female family member. Don't know if she was married or not. But from the interviews further down the road, it's a, a female talking who owned the house. So it's kind of what I assume from that. But again, we know it's a family member. Just don't know exactly who. So Provincetown is a very historical place and always kind of has been a pretty historical place. Kind of like I said before, a lot of colorful people there, a very vibrant environment in general and at this point in time was kind of full of hippies full of drugs if you wanted to try something kind of have your little your little fantasy lit up weekend you go to provincetown you can have fresh seafood and drop acid or something similar to that sign um, so, me up again very progressive but it was a very nice vacation place for people to go and unwind, especially people who were in their early to late 20s. It held that party vibe to it. And if you look at a picture of Massachusetts, Provincetown is very much like up on the tip of Massachusetts. So it's if you have the arm of Massachusetts, it's kind of like the fist. Okay. The culture at that time, people were not described as unique or anything like that. They were just called freaks. So it was commonly called a freak neighborhood. Okay. The people who lived there were proud of who they were. They were all the same community, so they found their other people. Everyone was very respectful to everyone else there. So people who came there to visit, people were respectful, who were, you know, the, the whole the fishing community and the hippie community were just like, what up, guys? You feed us, you work, we get along great. We trade lobster rolls for tabs of acid. 
exactly let us let us smoke let us smoke this devil's lettuce Uh, yeah so and that's kind of how it was there's a little mutual agreement of respect there and everyone lived their lives that made me really want to create a shirt that just says lobster rolls and devil's lettuce can we please lobster rolls and devil's lettuce (laughs) yeah i'm gonna do it I'm going to do it tonight. And everybody, welcome to our first merch item that's coming out. It's called <laughs> Lobster Rolls and Devil's Lettuce. <laughs> so basically, when Tony went to Provincetown, he was still in high school. So he finished up high school there. He never really fit in, which, again, not really much of a surprise there. And he held himself as an intellectual and always had to be right about everything. Mm. No one really wanted to be around him because it was annoying. Yeah, what a party pooper. He did have some other weird hobbies that kind of started to pop up. One included taxidermy. So in addition to his hobbies of fake smothering people, he added taxidermy? He added taxidermy. Untrained taxidermy. Untrained taxidermy, which he practiced mostly from picking up roadkill. He would take dead animals off the side of the road and make them into weirder dead animals. At least they're already dead. Yes. And they don't know if it was him or not, but there were some home pets that had gone missing Mm. in the time that he was there around that age, mostly family cats and cats in the neighborhood. It was never, nothing was ever found besides the roadkill taxidermy uh, that people knew about. So they don't know if he actually played a part in some of the cats that went missing. He did eventually get married, I believe, once he had graduated high school. As we can kind of gather from what was said previously and the way that he grew up with this, with the pillow smothering and the tying up, he enjoyed people that were more submissive. Okay, not a surprise. Who would be more submissive than a 14-year-old girl? No. So Tony married a 14-year-old named Avis, and she was very submissive. He also got her pregnant three times. They had three children together. He was very angry at first because the first child they had was a boy, and he did not like that. He wanted a girl. The second child was a boy, so he was still angry because he wanted a girl. Third child was a girl. He was overjoyed, and that was his pride and joy, apparently. Odd fixation with females, even when they're in your own family. He continued his life in Provincetown. He was a carpenter and did other small odd jobs. A lot of the houses there, again, this is in the 1960s, but they're very old houses. And if you think of a typical beach house, he was in his 20s at this time, but he still hung out consistently with teenagers at the high school. So he never really hung out with anybody his own age. He always hung out with teenagers. And his way in with these kids would be not lobster rolls, but the devil's Devil's lettuce. lettuce. The devil's lettuce. So he would kind of show off to get friends, quote unquote friends, who were these young kids by smoking weed with them, having it around, kind of being the cool older guy. He would show off his garden, which was a garden of marijuana. Mm -hmm. And he would take them through there. And that was kind of his like, yeah, guys, I'm cool. Come hang out with me. I got this marijuana garden. It's just down this really long dirt road behind a cemetery. No big deal. Come with me. Which, if there's anyone listening here who's under the age of 20, don't trust those fucking people. They're not that cool. Do not. I'm going to send you, we're going to post this, but I'll send you a picture of the long dirt road right now. No. Yeah, we don't, we, we shouldn't be walking down stuff like that. No, 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 no. I'm cool. So definitely very creepy. And it didn't take long for his love life, his his marriage with a 14-year-old, now 17-year-old with three kids to go down the shitter. He did use a lot of drugs there, smoked pot a lot, used other drugs as well. And he basically ruined his marriage with it. And she didn't want to be around any longer. But they were still together still married and he told her that he was going to leave for california and give two crazy hippie girls 
a ride to Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. The girls that he was going to be giving a ride to were Bonnie Williams and Diane Federoff, and they were never seen again. Shocker. Police did end up questioning him, and he said that the girls had him drop them off somewhere in California, somewhere I think near San Francisco. Not Pennsylvania? Not Pennsylvania. It's <laughs> a little different, but okay. Yes. So he was questioned in the disappearance of these two women, but nothing ever came of it, and that was kind of it. They disappeared, and nothing was ever really done about it. He went home on his merry way back to Massachusetts. So his whole point of going to California was to give those two girls a ride to Pennsylvania initially? So he was going to drive to California, but he was going to drop them off in Pennsylvania. So he was going to drive from Massachusetts to Pennsylvania and then go to California. But instead, he took the girls to California and dropped them off and then said, I don't know. Did they say anywhere why he was initially going to, like what his reasoning for going to California in the first place was? They did mention it around the same time that he was starting to have troubles with his wife. So Mm. an assumption would be... It was a trip of leisure. Getting away, getting some space. He met these two hippie girls. Gonna go travel a little bit for fun. Um, When he did return, and this was around 1968, his marriage again was shit. Well, yeah, you had three kids with a kid. Exactly. So you basically have four kids. Yeah. And And you are a child yourself, I'm sure. Around 20, I think 23 at the time. Listen, your brain doesn't stop developing until your mid to late 20s. My brain is still developing. I'll be honest. You're still pretty much a kid. Let's be real. (laughs) Yeah. It's, I mean, the maturity level, especially for males, it's known that generally speaking, 22 is not the age of full maturity for anyone. An adult ready to rear three children. Yes. He got home after California, his marriage was shit. And he goes, man, guess I'll just go back to California. So he packs his bags again and goes back to California and has actually met, he actually met another girl named Barbara. He decided to get all up in that and and live with her. Just stay with Barbara. Of course. Yes. As these people often do. Suck you by. Yes, they just reel them in. But he lived with Barbara for a few months. And after that, Barbara also had a child of her own. But after they lived together for a few months, Barbara dropped her child off with her parents. And then Barbara vanishes. Oh, great. Detectives again questioned him about the disappearance of Barbara. This time it was a person he was closer to. So a few more questions there. But ultimately, there were no charges ever brought. Nothing ever happened. And that was that. Apparently, it's not suspicious enough that you keep leaving with random women and they disappear and then you come back and they don't. It always astonishes me that people just go missing, especially this day and age. Yeah. Like people just still just vanish, like nowhere to be found. Boom, poof, off the face of the planet. It's still baffling to me. So he ended up working in a doctor's office and he was fixing a window. While he was supposed to be working, he went ahead and started flirting with the doctor's daughter, who was the receptionist. The doctor basically told him, stay away, GTFO. Mm -hmm. We do not like you here. Tony left and then randomly, right around that same time, over $5,000 worth of medical and surgical equipment and drugs were stolen from the office. Oh, no. The creepy handyman comes in, flirts with your daughter. You reprimand him, someone who, again, has never heard no or been punished besides the random law enforcement stuff. And then all of a sudden your stuff is missing when you've had no problems in a very small town. And he's left a taxidermy rat in its place as his calling card. No. <laughs> That would be awful. A week after the burglary, so this was about a two-week span of time that this all happened, there was another missing person case that happened in the town. Her name was Sydney Monson. She leaves home to go to a party, and she's never heard from again. Her family, unfortunately, did not report her missing for about three or four weeks because they figured she just left. They lived in a hippie community. Oh, 
Okay. They lived in a hippie community. They felt that she probably just went back uh, or went out and wanted to go on her way. And that she either left to try and go to Europe because she had been talking about it or to just live the hippie lifestyle and travel and become more acquainted with the world. But she was also said to have been Tony's new girlfriend. Well, there you go. It's finally a little bit later, I think midsummer in 1968, and he finally officially divorced his wife. Oh. So she's stuck with him through all of this. And finally, it's over. It's done. Little would you believe he's got a new girlfriend. Her name is Susan and she moves right in with him. Is this guy attractive looking or is he just very charismatic or is he just like got a penchant for finding He's not ladies? completely unattractive. Not that that's relevant for getting a girlfriend, but I'm just wondering how he's gotten so many in such a short period of time. Oh, okay. He's very 60s. Yeah, he looks like a very 60s, free soul kind of person. He's got a very luscious beard. He does. And the beard does eventually go, but he keeps he keeps the creepy mustache. Oh. Uh, without the beard, though, he's in, he does not look very great. Beards really do, do enhance a face, usually. Beards can change a person. They can hide things. And I wish it was acceptable for me because I would hide my face. One of my longest um, friends, her mom and dad, when they were just dating before they got married, he had like a foot long beard, like down to his chest yeah. beard. She had never actually seen the, the mom had never actually seen the dad's face. And then when they got married, he shaved it all off. Like, luckily, he's very handsome. So it worked out well for them. But she had never even seen his face prior to marrying him, which just blows my mind. I've seen ones where dads shave their beards when their kids have never seen them without one. And these kids that are like two or three years old won't go touch them. They'll like yep. run away because it <laughs> looks like a stranger. All right. Back to the story. So him and his wife get divorced. He has a new girlfriend, Susan Perry, and she moves in with him. About a week after she moves in with him, she disappears. Oh, my God. When detectives come and question him about this disappearance, he tells them that she left to go to Mexico. Okay. And that's Was it. Was she Hispanic? No. Not that okay. I'm aware of. I won't okay. say completely no, but not that I'm aware of. Okay. Apparently that's good enough for the police because they just let it be. Mm. A few weeks after that, he's arrested for driving without a license. And then he gets arrested again for not paying his child support. Okay. So, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm laughing because it's just like, clearly very, this guy has much better things to be arrested for. And this is what he's getting arrested for. But okay. at least he's getting arrested for something. I mean, yeah. there's been so much going on and he's just been like, oh, well, I guess I'll just go to the corner store. Like, just walk around freely. After he's released, he meets a woman named Christine and they start doing drugs together. It didn't say exactly what it was. I assume from the way it was spoken about, it was needles. Mm. It very well might not have been. But they started sharing drugs. And a few weeks later, she's found dead in her bathtub in her apartment in New York City. And did they say what the cause of death was, supposedly? A drowning overdose. Oh, okay. So she OD'd while she was in the bath and She drowned. OD'd while she was in the bath and drowned. Just putting that in there, because again, suspicious around this guy. Everyone seems to be disappearing, and now someone's yeah. dead, and it keeps happening. It's like flies on the wall. Like every time one comes in, it's just gone. He's a black widow, I guess. I mean, I mean, I know, I know, female black widows are the ones that kill their partners, but this applies. It's, I think it does. He's a little bit of a bitch. I just saw this photo you sent of him without a beard. That is a different person. Right? It looks totally different. Wow. You can tell by the nose. That's the only thing he's, you can tell. It's the same he's nose. He's got a great Cupid's bow, but his chin looks straight up like Dahmer's chin. Yes. On January 24th, 1969, Patricia Walsh and Mary Ann Wasaki take an off-season trip to Cape Cod, and they rent a room in a cottage in Provincetown. The room is part of a boarding house, so it's basically someone's house that is renting out the rooms. Like a hostel. Yeah. It okay. does so happen 
to be the same one that Mr. Tony Costa rents a room at. Okay. He meets them as soon as they get there because it's not a very big place. There's only a few rooms. And he's actually Mm -hmm. very polite with them, helps them with their bags, and offers to give them some pot, smoke a little bit, have a good time. He hangs out with them in their room for a little bit. They're out on the town. The next day, he moves out of the boarding house. And what do you know? The two girls go missing. They disappear. Oh, God. How many is that now? Six, seven, eight, seven? Oh, God. It doesn't matter. It's it's quite a lot. It's quite a bit. Okay. There became a big search for these girls. So basically, I had looked into first doing this episode on just the case of these two girls until I realized all of this had unfolded because of it. So I was specifically looking just into them. And then I was like, I have gone down a rabbit hole and we need to give a brief synopsis of all of this now. Mm-hmm. So these two girls, they were best friends. They lived in Providence, Rhode Island, and they had taken a trip from Providence to Provincetown to just get away. They were both 23 years old. One was a teacher. The other one was in college still. They'd gone to high school together, went to college together. Patricia's boyfriend lived in California. He called her the day before. She was excited about going on the trip. He was like, don't do anything I wouldn't do, but have fun with the acid. So he knew what they were getting into. They had not told anyone exactly where they were staying but just that they were going there. Okay. Her boyfriend expected a call when they got back. They left on a Friday. He expected a call maybe by Sunday. He didn't get a call on Sunday. It turned into Monday and he still hadn't gotten a call. And he was like, what the fuck is going on? Mm -hmm. So he tries to call. Everything goes unanswered. He ends up talking to her father. Her father doesn't know anything. And then her father ends up getting a call from the school she works at and says, hey, Patricia did not show up to teach. And her dad's like, okay, something is wrong because she would never not just show up to teach a class. Her boyfriend flies down from California, decides to come to the East Coast to try and help figure out what's going on. Eventually, they figure out through talking. The boyfriend actually finds out before the police find out where the girls were staying at this boarding house. They all go up and start looking for these missing girls. It's plastered all over the papers, Cape Cod Times. Provincetown. Everyone knows that these girls have gone missing. Questions kind of start to be thrown about. Police go to the boarding house where they stayed. The person who runs it, she's very upfront about all of them. So she tells them that Tony was there. She tells them the girls were there. She gives them a note of Tony asking if he could have a ride from them that was left on their door. She also informs them that Tony moved out, but he left almost all of his stuff there. Mm, sus. And she had put it in a box gave it over to the police and in that box they found some personal items and they also found a piece of rope everyone's kind of aware of these girls missing and provincetown is right above a town called churro and there was a man who was driving down a street there who normally drives down this one street didn't list it specifically in the corner of his eye he kind of sees a shimmer from the woods and it is a blue weird shimmer he gets out of his car walks over and it's just a blue vw bug just chilling in the woods in this little clearing so he calls the cops They come and they look at it and they're like, oh, well, that's weird. Seems suspicious. And then they leave. And that's it. Just a very odd kind of situation. There was no correlation between the two things at the time. But the two girls had driven up to Provincetown in a blue VW bug. But the lack of communication between the two towns, even though they were right next to each other, it wasn't found out till a bit later that that was the car that they were looking for, for these two girls. Wow. 
So eventually police went to investigate from Provincetown with the girls going missing. And when they got there, the car was gone. Authorities hadn't moved it. Someone had come and taken the car. The girls left and disappeared in January, end of January 1969. And around the middle of February, Susan Perry's body was discovered behind the old Churro Cemetery. And it had been cut into eight pieces. Oy. And just a little trigger warning. The bodies and pieces becomes an unfortunate trend in all of these. Okay. Um, the most that is known is about the two girls from Rhode Island. So on March 4th, while searching for the two girls from Rhode Island, they came upon the body of Sydney Monson. And she was the one who had gone to a party and never come back. So the one whose parents thought she had run away. Okay. Again, body was dismembered. They realized that it wasn't the two girls that they were looking for, that it was someone completely different. So they had just happened upon in the woods a random body out of nowhere. Okay. As they continued looking, they did find the bodies um, of the two girls. They were found one and a half miles from where Susan Perry's body was found. So a mile and a half from that dirt road cemetery. All of them had their hearts cut out, teeth marks on all of their bodies, and it was said that there was evidence of necrophilia with every body that they found. There was a tree that was at the burial site that had ropes hanging off of it that looked like they had a lot of weight on them. And they were also covered in blood. So it kind of looked as if maybe people had been tied up and hung on the trees. Okay. There were a lot of pill bottles and drug bottles around the area. So possibly people had been drugged. They didn't know or it had maybe been a party site before a killing site. They found Mary's head inside of a bag, a laundry bag. They found another one of the bodies inside an army surplus bag. And they ended up finding another random body part buried underneath them. So basically, they had found the two girls and then a stench came up. They kept digging and there was a very decomposed body that was underneath. Wow. Okay. They ended up going back to Tony and questioning about him about everything that happened they had a very sneaking suspicion that he had something to do with all of these girls because he seemed to be having either relationships or interactions with all of them they tracked him around for a little bit and eventually he was staying at his mom's house and he had heard the news of what was going on with these girls and he called the police station because he heard them looking for him through word of mouth through news and everything and the police were very surprised that he called in because why would someone who's guilty of all these murders just call in and be like, hey, what's up? Heard you wanted to talk to me. Trying to s- s- appear innocent. Yes. And he like was like, do you mi- forthcoming. Exactly. And he's like, do you mind if I come in tomorrow? And the cop's like, yeah, man, come on in tomorrow. Matter of fact, why don't I come get you tomorrow? Yeah. <laughs> like, meet me at your front door at 11 o'clock in the morning. And he's like, OK, see you there. And the cops were like, wait, maybe that was a bad idea to tell him we'll come pick him up. But they went to his house and he walked out the door and just got into the cop car and went down to the police station. And the cops started to do the questioning while he was in the car. And he started getting a little bit, a little bit more fidgety while he was in the car. He being questioned and the cop was like, why? What's wrong? Like, what's going on, man? Uh, Everything okay?" And he's like, well, yeah, I just don't I don't want to be involved in this. Like, I want to help you like 
do this, but I don't want to, you know, this such, I heard you guys are, are looking for me. There's, you're giving me a bad reputation. The cop's like, well, why, why would we do that? And he's like, are you a bad man? And he's like, no, no, I'm not a bad man, but you might think I'm a bad man. And the cop's like, why? And he's like, cause I got their car. And the cop's oh, like, no. oh, okay. So while he's in the car driving back, he pulls out of his pocket a bill of sale that is signed by both him and Patricia from Patricia selling him the car. Oh, boy. He gives that to the officer. They get down to the station, keeps being questioned, and he finally tells them the story of what happened. I love that his initial concern is his reputation, not the fact that these girls that he's been dating have all started dying. Like, maybe be a little concerned about the fact that there's murders happening, not so much like, oh, I'm going to be perceived as a bad man because I bought this car. What the fuck? From what I'm aware of, they didn't tell him about, like, finding other bodies and all of this. So when he was questioned, it was just about these girls who had disappeared. Oh, okay. Not that they've been murdered and he's getting questioned about that. Exactly. Because I don't think they knew exactly. Yeah, they didn't know exactly what was going on So this person has disappeared and you're worried about your reputation. Yes. Mm -hmm. The bill of sale automatically looks suspicious to them because it seemed like both signatures may have come from the same person. Well, duh. (laughs) Fancy that. No one saw that coming. Um, So he kind of whips up this story and says that the girls went to Provincetown because one of them needed an abortion and they were going to go to Canada for the abortion, which, by the way, Provincetown is not the way to get to Canada. (laughs) Um, It says they're going to go to Canada to get an abortion and that they needed money for it. So Patricia sold her car to him. And that's how they got money to go to Canada for the abortion. And then he's like, hold on, I'm lying. They didn't go to get an abortion. A few months ago, I sold them a lot of marijuana and they never paid me. And they decided the only payment they could give me was the car. So I collected. And the cops are like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, what? what is the actual story? And then he's like, well, both. Well, they needed an abortion and I sold them drugs. And they needed to pay me. So it just went into this whole like runaround of dumb stuff and excuses for for all of this. Immediately just changing a story over and over again. That's accountability right there. Yes. That's and then they're like, so, then they're like so, where's the, so where's the car? And he's like, uh, it's in Vermont. They're like, why is it in Vermont? <laughs> Vermont. And he's like, well, I was going to get a paint job on it. So then they're like, okay. So they go and get this car. They look in it. And it looks like the car had been cleaned, but not clean enough. There were blood stains on the steering wheel. They found an ice scraper in the back. They found all this stuff just kind of like covered in blood. Eventually he was arrested. It was found out after he was arrested when they went and searched his place that the places that he actually had buried some of the body parts in was covered up by his marijuana, personal marijuana fields that he had. Oh, like fertilizing them. Yes, basically. He, in his closet at his home, they found a lot of rope and the rope had all red, red stains on it, um, which turned out to be blood. His story through all of this continued to change and he kept blaming it on friends and they tried to give him polygraph tests. He failed all the polygraph tests. Not surprising, but awful. Yep. His mom eventually gave a letter to the police that was addressed to Tony from the two girls from Rhode Island and was delivered. It was between six and eight weeks after they had disappeared and it came from New York. Believed that Tony sent the letter himself to try and give it as a way of like the girls are like not. Dead. I mean, they're definitively, but then they found, but then they're they found definitively them. dead. Then they found, they found them. bodies. Yeah. So that probably doesn't work. This became huge in the media, which again, it's why when growing up, I knew about it. It's why you would never 
walk alone in these places uh, on Cape Cod. And he became named... Sorry, I don't mean to laugh, but this first name gets me. Um, He gained the nicknames Tony Chop Chop. Oh, no. The Cape Cod Casanova and the Cape Cod Vampire. And those were just on every single headline that was out there. The district attorney was the one who started telling everybody that heads were removed and that there was evidence of cannibalism. The medical examiner ended up proving later that there was no cannibalism. So the district attorney in the case was fabricating these things to make it seem like more of a newsworthy kind of story, which is where he got the cannibal label. But even though they were extremely brutal, there was no cannibalism that happened in any of this. What an unnecessary thing to add. It's like, it's already terrible. Just leave it as it is. Especially with things that are so publicized and the families reading about them. That's yeah. how they hear all these things and a district attorney is someone that you trust when they put out information so if a da anywhere said something like that people would most likely believe it it'd it'd be probably grounds for some sort of issue to come up in the trial own da is lying about stuff why would you trust anything that da has to say as a, a member of the jury at that point exactly it ended up becoming such a huge tourist destination i guess you would call it more of a tourist attraction because of the media attention that it got Families would bring picnic lunches and shovels and try and dig for body parts and items around the area. They wanted to help try and find evidence. No, no, no. So he was eventually, Tony was eventually diagnosed with a schizoid personality in March of 1969. It was the first actual psychological evaluation that he had ever had. So newsflash, there was something wrong and it fit. Because he was a loner. He was dismissive of others. He did not really form close relationships, even though he was married. Everything was very kind of one and done or no one stuck around, whether he killed them or they left. It just didn't work out. He didn't care about anything that was going on around him. It was all about him. He had another psych evaluation after that, which determined he was sexually dangerous man capable of murder. Oh, you don't say. He basically had a lot of fantasies that involved violence, suffering. So it... It's interesting to me that he didn't use a pillow to smother any of these girls that we know of. Did they did they list their causes of death at all? The only other thing I read was that Mary Wasaki, uh, Marianne was shot two times in the head. Okay. And that's the only real thing that I found out. It wasn't like manual strangulation was the cause of death for all of these, which would make the timeline from the pillow to this a little more linear. It wasn't. No, because it, it, it wasn't. Yeah. And Marianne's one kind of throws that off. I, there was ropes and stuff involved with everyone, though. Yeah. So they all had bite marks. They all had rope marks. But also to note, it was reported that they were all dead before dismembered. So he killed them and then whatever else he did. Right. Again, not that it makes it any better. I mean, you could imagine less suffering then. That's I think that's better on big picture. But yeah. Okay. It started to come out from people in Provincetown who had been invited to see Tony's garden and had declined the invitation. They were all starting to come out and talk about him and being like, thank God I didn't go to his murder garden. They were so surprised that they were living around someone who could be so devious and commit these crimes and Mm -hmm. just go out every day. And they thought, yeah, maybe he was a little bit weird, but for the most part, he was a pretty normal person and very helpful. Yeah. But creepy to think that he wasn't showing off his weed garden. He was showing you off the dead bodies underneath the weed garden. You just didn't know it. That's some secret garden stuff right there. Or secret, yeah, secret garden, right? Secret window. Secret window. Secret oh. garden's the yeah, nice, the... nice one. <laughs> I used to watch that with my dad. But yeah, <laughs> that made my stomach. Yeah, because you know that's why he was bringing people by. 
show off his trophies. What a douche. One of the girls who told a story was actually the daughter of an author, and he ended up writing about the whole case. There's a lot of books on this that are actually pretty good. He had talked to the sheriff, this author. His name was Kurt Vonnegut, and his daughter was Edith. Mm-hmm. He said that he felt that if Tony was really the murderer, then anyone could be a murderer. And he started to put out there that maybe Tony was framed. And this became like a whole big thing of saying like Tony was framed. And that one year prior, Tony had told local police the names of suspected dope dealers who had eventually been arrested and that it was possible it was a revenge frame killing. You know, you know who Kurt Vonnegut is, right? He's like a really famous author. He did um, Slaughterhouse-Five, Cat's Cradle. Oh, I do. I didn't know the name, but I... Yeah. Okay. That's actually kind of shocking that he's tied into this. Oh, that's interesting. He was the one who made this conspiracy theory that he was framed speculated that tony was framed because it was his daughter edith who had run into tony and decided to not go back to his murder garden wow vonnegut also said though that chopping up four innocent girls as an act of revenge seemed a little bit far-fetched an act of revenge from the dope dealers that uh tony put behind bars honey no that theory was kind of thrown out but people took it and ran with it people will take anything and run with it it's really, yeah. I don't think it's very hard to get a conspiracy theory out there and widely publicized and talked about. I really just don't think it is. Human beings are inherently very gullible. Yeah. I and mean, that's why we have cults. Kurt Vonnegut also had recalled a joke that he heard from an architect who knew or had heard this about Tony, which was just kind of like what he considered a sick joke at the at the time. Uh, the architect said Tony Costa walked into a Cadillac agency in Hyannis and priced an Eldorado. And the salesman said, it'll cost you an arm and a leg. And Tony said, it's a deal. So that's like the kind of jokey. Gross. His trial began on May 6th, 1970. So about a year later, the district attorney didn't attempt to provide motive because his answer was, who knows why anybody would do such a thing? I mean, he's not wrong. He's not. But at the same time, it's a, it's a trial. This is your job, my dude. Mm -hmm. The jury was required to tour the grave sites. Wow. That's kind of shocking. I've heard of it happening before of juries touring crime, like crime scenes. I don't know when it stopped, though, but I've heard of it in the past. Now they just get photos or video. Yeah. Tony's lawyer blamed his behavior on drug use and his ex-wife testified on his behalf for that. I'm sure she had lovely things to say. Um, it was said that during the trial, he came across as very cold and arrogant, as opposed to the, the calm and, and helping nature that he usually had. He spent most of his time taking notes and insisted that he make his own statement. Sounds very arrogant. So when he was able to give his own statement, he just basically, if, if we reference South Park here, did the drugs are bad, okay? And that was like his entire statement that oh, he made. That was Drugs defense. made me do this. It's bad. It was also extremely long. His reasoning in doing that was he thought that people wouldn't think he was crazy if he blamed it on drugs. Sorry, I'm laughing because I I can't with this guy. On May 29th, 1970, which was just a few days after the trial started, on May 29th, 1970, Tony was convicted of four murders and sentenced to life in prison in Walpole, Massachusetts. He was convicted of the murders of Patricia Walsh, Mary Ann Masaki, Susan Perry, and Sidney Monson. He continued his weird behavior while he was behind bars. He basically turned his cell into a library with books from the occult, ritual magic. He had the Satanic Bible. He wrote a memoir that was called Resurrection. And he started to blame the deaths of people that he killed on Carl. You don't know who the fuck Carl is. Okay. But he said Carl 
Carl shot the woman. No. And then Tony, like, took him down. Okay, pal. He said that Marianne was still suffering, so he had to use a knife on her, too. That was kind of his whole thing. Like, he was he was the hero because he helped her. Oh, like a wounded animal. Okay, yeah, sure. Basically. That's how we treat humans. Mm-hmm. He claims that Susan and Sydney died of drug overdoses and that Carl dismembered them and buried them. Okay. And he insisted, he insisted he only learned about it after. He didn't know what, about it while it was happening. Up until he wrote his memoir, there was no Carl. Carl just appeared. I, I'm honestly speechless. I don't know what to say to any of this other than like, give it up, my dude. On May 12th, 1974, Tony was 29 years old. He was found hanging from a woven leather belt in his jail cell, determined to be a suicide. And he was laid to rest by his mother in an unmarked grave in Provincetown. The whole garden area, from what I've seen, is still there. Not the pot plants, but that whole area like is still kind of an attraction for people. So you get a lot of ghost hunters that go there that try and talk to the spirits of the people who were there. There's been rumors that satanic worship goes on there sometimes. It was considered haunted after there were several paranormal readings that went on there in between 2005 and 2007. And you know that you've reached that spot because there's a weird tree that has a phone hanging on it. So this is a photo of like literally a like wall telephone bolted into a tree. Yeah. Maybe because they were hippies and they wanted to talk to nature. That's actually extremely know. oddly interesting and sounds like someone on drugs would do that. Yeah. I mean, if I was a hippie and I was high as shit on acid, I would think about something like this. Bolting yeah. a phone to a tree so I could talk to Mother Nature. Tell her yeah. I'm sorry. But now it's, now it's like a weird tourist spot, as are a lot of sites of these kind of things. I don't know what it is about. Maybe it's because I'm a West Coaster, but I feel like the East Coast has substantially more paranormal stuff going on over there. I don't I know I think why. it does. And I think it has to do with the age of the East Coast. In, in terms of what? <laughs> does, no, so like, like that part of the Earth was born before this part of the Earth? No, well, there's, there's so much that revolves <laughs> around like the witch trials and all that stuff happening over on the East Coast and a lot of the colonialism. You mean like colonialism the age of civilization and... over there of yeah. colonialism? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Not necessarily civilization. We got there. But... We got there. Yeah, Not okay, civilization. Okay. Yes. Okay. I am gotcha. very, very sorry about that one. I ran myself in circles. <laughs> that's okay. We eventually got around there. It's the cold ocean. That's why. It is. That's what, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm sticking with. It's the cold ocean. There's literally cold ocean on the West Coast. It's not as cold as the Atlantic, though. And it is now. The temperatures here are fucking plummeting. <laughs> Hang on. Let's check this. Okay. Maybe we could delete that part because the Atlantic Ocean is actually warmer than the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> I blame COVID, okay? We're not deleting it. It's We're fine. deleting that. No, God. everybody deserves to be educated. It's fine. I'll take the I'll, t- I'll take it. The Pacific Ocean is on average 16 degrees Fahrenheit, 9 degrees Celsius, colder than the Atlantic Ocean. That tells you how many times I've been in the Atlantic Ocean, which is approximately zero times. I was going to say maybe zero. Okay. I'm I'm delirious from COVID. <laughs> we need to end this here. Thank you so much for listening, as always. Um, if you're interested, hop on over to our Instagram or our Twitter. Go ahead and give us a little, some little hearts on stuff, a little follow, you know? Uh, pretty please. We also um, love, love, love your guys' reviews and feedback. Um, if you want to review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, send us an email. Um, murderversary at gmail.com that goes directly to us we will respond to you 
Hello, hi. In fact, hey, didn't we get a, a message from someone about a previous episode? We did get a message. We got a yeah. message. I and I'm I mean to, I meant to say this too. So our episode that we did on Bobby Jost in it, we got a message talking about rat terriers because I did not know that rat terriers were meant to catch the rats. And yeah. I now know. So we yes. have formally been corrected. And now we are letting you know that as well. So we all have the proper information. So thank you. Thank you so much for that little tidbit of information. Always welcome. Yes, we love we love fast facts. We do. We do love fast. We do love fast facts. Um, also, <laughs> to add to this ending here, we now have a Patreon. Feel free to go stop over. It is patreon.com slash murderversary. You can join the Murderversary Trading Card of the Month Club. But wait, call now and you'll get two for one. Sorry, that felt very infomercial. So but you to... won't get two for one because this shit's no. expensive to make. <laughs> so... <Yes. laughs> um, we do love you, though, and thank you. Lastly, if you're feeling alone you're not there are people and there is help please 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 go to our website murderversarypodcast.com click on the resources tab and you can find some really great information of places where you can go get help if you ever need it or pass it along if you know someone else who does because we are great and we think that you deserve all the happiness and love that this life has to offer and we're so happy you're here we love you okay see you next time Okay, bye. Fuck up. Bye. Bye.